again to Media Democracy, a podcast about politics, the media and the politics of the media. Brought to you by the Media Fund. My name is Dan Hind, at Dan Hind on Twitter, and I'm joined as always by Tom Mills at TA underscore Mills. Today we're very lucky to have with us Tamsin Cave. Tamsin is a a researcher and activist who works at Spinwatch, at Spinwatch on Twitter. She's also the co-author of A Quiet Word, Lobbying, Crony Capitalism and Broken Politics in Britain. It's a book she co-wrote with, with Andy Rao, which looks at uh, the lobbying industry. She's also been responsible for any number of investigative splashes in the swamps that surround Westminster. Today we're going to talk to Tamsin about the lobbying industry, its underappreciated affinities and overlaps with the media, the way that big corporates use lobbying techniques to drive further privatisation in health and education, and what we can do to push back. Before that, Tamsin, can you explain what the lobbying sector consists of and what it does. Uh, okay, hello, hello. Um, yeah, the lobbying industry in the UK is um, its a, an estimated £2 billion industry um, and it's, if you think of lobbying as any attempt to influence the decisions of government, so these are people who are paid and they could be either paid by corporations working in-house so they could be Tesco's in-house lobbying team, or they are lobbyists for hire, and that is any number of companies, law firms, management consultancies, PR agencies, all have lobbyists for hire. And it's their job to make sure that the decisions of government go in the interests um, of their client or employer. Um, And if you think that the majority of the money spent on commercial lobbying in this country comes from corporations, and that's not to say that obviously trade unions and charities and any number of other um, individuals and organisations also lobby, um, but the majority of money comes from the corporate sector, so that gives them a disproportionate um, influence um, and a louder voice in government, which is is where we see the problem lying. So overwhelmingly the lobby industry's concern is with with influencing elite decision makers, is that... that is that is that a fair sort of distinction that one might make between them and say PR? Yeah, I mean, yes. Although it is the case that if you need to influence the decisions of government, and it has to be said that the easiest way of doing that is without any public scrutiny. Right. So the quieter the, the lobbying is, and the more behind closed doors that it is, the more chance you have of success because you have only your voice and the government's voice um, in the room, and you don't have any conflicting interests. Um, so you want to do it without public scrutiny, but it may be the case that there is um, a need to reach out to other stakeholders, um, as they're called, and that could be uh, the professions that you need to get on board, or it could be a particular interest groups. So it could be that it could be that you need to get the farmers on board behind a particular policy, or or whatever. Um, and in and in certain occasions, on certain occasions, in circumstance, circumstance, certain circumstances, you will need to get the public behind you. So, um, gov- uh, ministers don't make decisions in a vacuum. They are surrounded by what we call the information environment. And so you want to basically make sure that that is amenable, that is, that is supportive, that information environment is supportive of your particular right. wants and desires. Right. So it might be that you need to go to the mainstream media and push your messages in there to get public opinion on board so the politician feels able to take the decision that you want them to take. So there's um, a couple of elements there. So like, there's uh, the quiet word, and then there's, I guess, you might call it a sort of elite coalition building, like uh, finding other people who are going to sort of push your perspectives for you. Could you talk a little bit about... Um, if you're, if it's just going to be uh, you, the lobbyist, and the the minister in a room without any of those outside interests or exposure, um, h- how is this normally done? Um, any number of ways. I mean, it, you know, the most straightforward thing would be to get a meeting with either the the decision maker themselves. Um, uh, so that might be the minister or the secretary of state, um, or you go to ordinarily you first go to their special advisor, which is why special advisors are often 
uh, very close to the lobbying industry or they come from the lobbying industry and these are these are the kind of brokers of these type of relationships so you will send out a special advisor who will then pass the messages through to their minister um, and it may be that you then get to sit down with the minister um, and and thrash it out that way um, so that's that's I suppose the most direct way uh, of doing it but there's also the case of you want to have a relationship. A lot of a lot of lobbying is is um, is incredibly social. So you don't want to go in cold, and you don't want your rival to know the minister better than you. You want to be the person that the minister goes to for advice, for ideas, um, and um, you want to be able to counsel the minister rather than anybody else. So there's an awful lot of relationship building um, that goes on in lobbying, and it's incredibly important. Um, so you. It's, I mean, it still is the case that um, uh, there's an awful lot of hospitality that's directed at decision makers, and that can be senior civil servants or politicians. Um, and it's you know, everything from um, knowing that the minister prefers to go to Glyndebourne than to attend that concert, or you know, he prefers um, going to dinner in Mayfair to you know whatever else. So it's knowing the preferences and the and the and the, um, the tastes. Of the person that you are directing, and then making sure that you kind of you you use that knowledge that you have to to create this this close and um, uh, friendly relationship with the decision maker. So there's an awful lot of what Nybevan called gastronomic pimping that goes on still in the lobbying industry. Um, it, it's not as bad as it was. Um, it used to be very much the kind of old establishment, um, you know, the clubs around. Uh, Palmal and around Westminster. Um, I mean, that still does go on in the private members' clubs, where you get these relationships being formed and cemented. Um, but it's, it's, I suppose, more discreet now in in certain parts of the lobbying industry. One area that we've discovered recently where it isn't as discreet as um, as you may be expected to be is in the property industry. Um, in the wake of everything that's been going on sort of after the disastrous fire in Grenfell, um, we had a look at some of the the registers of hospitality of these local councillors that are running these huge councils in London. And I mean, I looked at the register of hospitality of the the well, he's now deputy leader, but he used to be head of planning at Westminster Council. Um, and his hospitality register for the last three years runs to 19 pages. Now this is um, this is this is hospitality primarily from the the developer, construction, housing, lobby. So that is um, you know everything from dinners in some of the Mayfair hotels. It can be trips to the big property fairs in Cannes. It's breakfast meetings at the Carlton Club. And, and what you get is you get this, you get an insight, and it is only a glimpse of the world that they inhabit. But these these local councillors who are making some very very you know key decisions on the shape of our cities um, are spending an awful lot of time with an industry that has an interest in getting very very close to these decision makers and making sure that the, the decisions that they take are going their way. And you get. Having looked at, I looked at Nick Paget Brown. So he's the, the former head of Kensington and Chelsea Council, um, certainly at the time of the fire. And I looked at his hospitality register, and you can see. I mean, he's going to have dinners with the Cadogan Estate and the Grosvenor Estate and stuff. This is a man who is looking up. He is not looking down at his residence. He's he's looking up to these people who have six point five billion pounds worth of property at their disposal. Um, he's the clerk. To these landlords, you know, so you can you get a site kind of a you get an insight into the world that he he ordinarily inhabits and where his concerns are. Um, and I think if you spend enough time around a particular industry, and it's not just it's not just the fact that they're having you know all these frequent social engagements with them, you know, they're also you get councillors stepping in and out of these property jobs. So the revolving door with the industry is very very strong as well. So there's. It, it's 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 creating this very cosy kind of club. I mean, that, that, to use David Cameron's word, words, is this, this cosy club at the top. It's the league club that is making decisions in its own interests. Right, and presumably the 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 end result of this is a, is an environment where certain kinds of uh, of thought or idea about housing just become 
inadmissible or inaudible, right? I mean, if someone t turns up in that context and starts talking about the right to housing or the need to decommodify housing, it's just kind of no one will really understand what they're talking about or will take it seriously because it's just not part of how they've come to understand their industry and their their sector. <laughs> Yeah, and their role in it. Um, yeah, no, I, it, it, entirely. You can see it in housing. Um, I think that's been writ large recently. But you can also see it's, it's a kind of a capture of a certain kind of decision maker by by particular commercial interest. And you could see it in the Department of Health, for example, um, particularly in the passage of the, the, the recent reforms or the Lansley reforms of a couple of years ago. Um, it's certainly at the top of the Department of Health, there is a kind of a groupthink about yeah. how the the service should be run and by whom. Um, and it's very much that, you know, they, they, they see the private sector as playing a very, very significant role. And in that sense, they are very out of step with public opinion. You so mentioned... Um, thinking, yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. You, you mentioned Tanzan earlier about controlling the information environment. So can you talk a bit more about yeah, the role of, of expertise in... Um, in, in lobbying and, and how that um, how that influences uh, the the political outcomes. Well, yeah, you have a lot of. I mean, the lobbying industry is made up of a lot of different people. There are people who just stepped out of politics. So these are people who are coming with a decent contacts book and then decent knowledge of how government works. But there's an awful lot of people who just stepped out of journalism um, and the mainstream media into the lobbying industry. It's a it's a kind of a very well trodden path. Um, and so you've got people like um, uh, George Pascoe Watson, who was the son, and now he works for Portland Communications. Um, and so he is bringing with him his, not only, it's the same thing, it's his contacts within the media, with journalists, um, but also intimate knowledge of how journalism and, and the newspapers um, work and what their needs are. So then if he is representing, and this is hypothetical, but so take, for example, a client of... Portland, which is the um, British Soft Drinks Association, so they lobby for the sugary drinks industry, basically, and they've been fighting regulation for ages. Now, it could be the case that um, George Patsco Watson, or certainly Portland, will want certain stories to go into the press, but more importantly, there's this dual role. So getting their messages into the press, and that could be that, you know, uh, sugary drinks aren't the problem, all it is is that people are lazy and sitting on the sofa too much and need to exercise more. So it's not the fault of the industry, it's all about exercise. But crucially also what their job is to do, and this is what they spend 50% of their time doing, is keeping stories out of the press. So making sure that the stories that are critical of their clients do not run. Um, and there are various different ways of killing stories. Um, just Can we talk a bit about the, like the, the sort of the tame academic specialists i mean i get a sense that a lot a lot of people who you know who are who do have expert knowledge are quite happy to sell themselves quite cheaply to the lobbying industry is that is that a, is that an unfair caricature of academia i don't think so no i mean if you if you go way back this has a long history so there is a case Certainly, it started with the tobacco industry um, way back when, decades ago, when they famously had their white coats. So these were scientists for hire that would go into the mainstream media, into the mainstream press, with messages from the tobacco industry saying that, or casting doubt on the on the link between tobacco and uh, lung cancer. Um, and so they really started this, and then obviously you get other what we call addictive industries like the alcohol industry, like the sugar industry, and the gambling industry as well, have all employed similar kind of tactics. So they will they will get academics um, who will be funded by the industry. I mean, in the case of tobacco, it was specifically to find causes that were not linked to tobacco. So they are they are using the credibility that scientists and the academics have with the public um, to forward their message. And it's a classic thing. PR, it's a classic PR technique, and it's, it's absolutely rife in the lobbying industry. And we call it the third-party tactic, which is basically, if you're a corporation, you are, most people aren't going to believe what you say because you are self-interested. You are there to make money, and, and so your, your, your voice lacks a certain amount of credibility with the with majority of the public. 
Sure. And they're not trusted. So what you have to do is you have to get somebody else to voice your message. Um, and it can be any number of people, um, scientists and academics being one, but you can also get, I mean, you can set up a consumer-looking front group that will push your messages out. Um, doctors and teachers and any other professions, they're very good. So in the, re in the Lansley reforms, we saw various front groups being created called things like Doctors for Reform and Nurses for Reform, but they were funded by private healthcare interests um, to voice, well, to go on things like the Jeremy Vine show and talk about how the reforms were very good and these Doctors for Reform supported them and this is why you should too. But what you couldn't see were the private health insurers that were sitting there behind two steps removed from this particular front group. So it's all about separating the message from the corporate interest in order to... to Kind of win credibility and and send it out to the public, and every lot so many industries do it. So the so the idea is to kind of uh, is to naturalise your own interests, right? So you have a particular corporate interest, but what you want to do is represent it as the findings of science and the kind of the dictates of common sense. Um, you, yeah, you, you I mean, you, you mentioned um, the addictive industries. I mean, I think there must be an enormous expenditure of effort and money in pushing has gone into pushing back against the idea that certain things are addictive um, uh, and that presumably is an ongoing struggle yeah I mean the, the tobacco industry for what 60 year campaign um, and used every tactic under the sun to um, continue to you know push their product um, and you know as I said the, the, the alcohol industry has learned a lot from the experience of the tobacco industry and similarly the, the, the sugar industry as well. Yeah, and, yeah. and, you know, whether it's pushing messages out through third parties or, I mean, they, they use hospitality as well. Diageo is a big, you know, is a very generous um, host of many politicians. Um, um, but it could also be a case of... Um, this is another tactic of the lobbying industry, is undermining their opponents. So you want basically governments and decision makers to listen to your voice and your point of view, but you do not want them to hear your opposition. So there is an awful lot of, uh, of um, effort gone into undermining your um, opponents, and that could be public health campaigners or it could be environmental campaigners or whoever it is that, that is um, purporting to be representing the public interest, they will... Either through smear campaigns or legal threats, or there's classic divide and conquer tactics. You know, whether you split your opposition into, you know, your your radicals that need to be marginalised, um, and the more moderate groups that you will engage in kind of continuous dialogue with and, and tie up here. So there's a there's, there's a num you know there's a, a a number of different ways that these industries will operate. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Is it? Do you think it's this is a little bit of a sidebar, but do you think it is it wrong to think that there are significant undeclared subsidies going into you know to to creating and promoting uh, helpful expertise? I mean, you mentioned tobacco companies. Do you think it's? I mean, are they paying people to 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 promote their ideas without without admitting it? Is that is that still going on? Did that go on? Well, in terms of academics, yeah, I'm thinking. Yeah, I'm thinking particularly of uh, really people you know who are pro you know prominent in the in the journalistic or in the, you know the public sphere. Um, are they are they being bought? Because um, and the reason I ask that is because in the 18th century, it was quite clear that you know writers worked for aristocratic patrons. Um, yeah. And we have a model now of the writer as a kind of an independent, you know, vo you know, sort of voice for truth, if you like, someone, you know, an intellectual, someone who who tells the truth as they see it. And I wonder if we're being we're just being naive about actually how the public sphere is articulated. There's a lot in that. I mean, there's. I can't answer yes or no. I don't know. But you can look at various things. You can look at the rise of paid for journalism for example, and, and just take the amount of money that The Guardian, for example, has accepted off the Gates Foundation. And they're doing some very good stuff on tobacco at the moment. Now, nobody likes the tobacco industry, so it's fairly uncontroversial, but you talk to anybody who's involved in kind of um, the anti-privatisation 
of schools movement in the US and and the Gates Foundation is the enemy number one. So there, there is a you know there's that's a problematic thing. The kind of the page for journalism. Yeah. Um, in terms of uh, academics, there was a report out yesterday in the Times. Um, which uh, highlighted the amount of funding going from Google uh, into academic studies. So this is the financing of um, academic posts and the like, um, and, and vast scale. Um, and that's you know that's about creating uh, an intellectual um, and um, uh, environment and a public debate that suits Google's um, position. So there, there is definitely that going on. Right. There, is, there are more right. subtle things as well, and it comes back <coughs> to kind of, um, ideas of capture, um, uh, but also kind of consensus. So, for example, I was at a, a, an elite education conference um, uh, earlier this year. Um, this is one organised by um, the British government, but it's 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 also sponsored by HP and Microsoft and various other tech companies and they invite the education ministers of the world over to discuss the future of education um, and some of it is very heavily weighted towards the technology industry um, and 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 how education needs to be digitized so I was out there and um, the chair for the opening day was David Aranovich now um, he did a very good job of kind of curating the whole event and 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 was sat there um, being a very competent chair. He's a you know he's a good commentator. He can he can speak eloquently and the like. What was more surprising was when I went back through his articles and and read his articles, which were basically um, su totally supportive of this uh, agenda that was being pushed at these annual events, which is about the digitization of of education and specifically talking about that they, they use this term of we need to personalise education, which is you know through technology or whatever. Right. And, he, and he did a very good piece. He mentioned his children in it, but nowhere did he... I mean, he mentioned his attendance at these events, but not that he was actually sat on the stage, and I'm assuming being paid um, to attend this, uh, this event. So, Well, Tamsin, I'm going to have to stop you there, because uh, David has written a book about conspiracy theorists, and therefore is immune <laughs> from, from any accusation of anything untoward or... But it, this is very normal. At all these corporate events, you will have a mainstream journalist, you know, somebody, a Channel 4 news presenter or whoever, or somebody from the trade press um, that's, that's, that's chairing it. And, and so you, they, they listen to these, these very elite conversations and, and the language of it and the framing of it, and, and it maybe just gets absorbed and comes out in their writing. Maybe they agree with every word of it. Maybe he hasn't taken a penny. I have no idea. But it just, it, 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 it struck me that there was... There was this coming together of, of yeah, elite media and elite corporate interests and elite government interests, um, and yet there was not a teacher present in the entire room. So I mean, that's interesting. It's interesting. Yeah, that's yeah, really, really interesting. Sorry, Tom, carry on. No, it's all right. Sorry, Dan, we just talked over each other. And I'll say it's interesting the way you describe mm. it because, I mean, on the one hand, like Dan said, it could be a question of, of, of buying a particular person. But then I suppose the, fir the first thing that they do is they think, right, who's actually which experts or academics are saying things which are useful to our interests, then they identify them, don't they? And then I suppose that that's the point at which they get drawn into these networks in the same way as the as the journalists do. So I guess in some in some cases there'd be money and in some cases it's um like you were saying about the, the sort of social environments in which you move, the the ideas of with which you know you, you hear and the rest of it. So yeah, so I think a lot comes down to ideas of deniability, doesn't it? I mean, part of how you do do. I was going to say this. Yeah. Right. So yeah, just talk 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 us talk us through that. Well, I mean, if you the obvious case is if um, <coughs> what you get now is you, for example, if a, if a corporate interest does set up a, a third party group, so we would call it a front group. Um, it's often the case that what they won't do is hide the fact. I mean, it is all but hidden. But the, the fact that they are funding this group won't be entirely secret. So somewhere you will be able to find out who is financing them. But because 
if it ever came to it that it was discovered and somebody like me would come along and we'd go, ah, but this is a front group for the, I don't know, sugar industry. And they said, no, 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 we declare our funding on our site. It's just <laughs> nobody looks at that. And certainly when that front group is on um, question time or any number of, um, you know, is being in interviewed in any number of circumstances, it won't be, and this is uh, the uh, particular front group, and they are funded by XX and X, it's never mentioned. So it's, it's, it's not so much that it's entirely hidden, it's just it's never mentioned that they are set up and financed by particular industries. That's interesting. And that, I mean, that brings us on to think a little bit about think tanks. I mean, presumably yeah. they're, you know, they're a particular kind of front group, aren't they? In that they're, again, they present themselves as being neutral um, actors in the public sphere, and they are presented as such often. In the yeah. media, but they will be they will they will be recipients of, of lavish corporate backing often. Yeah, and there are. I mean, I I now go back on what I've just said in that there are a large number of um, think tanks, particularly free market think tanks, um, that don't uh, declare who they're being funded by. So I'm thinking of the Institute of Economic Affairs. Um, we know it's been funded by the tobacco industry and various other interests, but um, they. We only know that through the tobacco industry, actually, not through them. But they—it's interesting, yeah. isn't it? Because so they, they, they believe in in the importance of free free markets and and presumably the need to be transparent in market transactions. So it seems very strange yeah. that they they wouldn't want to be very open and honest about their their backers. It's well, they never have, and they've been going since the 1950s. And it's the same with the Adam Smith Institute, the policy exchange. I mean, given the links that they have to the, the, the government, particularly the last um, government, so Cameron, although Michael Gove um, was its first chair, I mean, it's incredibly influential um, and has been for the last, you know, however many years. Um, think tank uh, is almost, you can almost see it as kind of like a, an external arm of government. Um, and... Yeah, they they and they've never said who is funding them. Um, you know, there are lots of, there are lots of organisations like this, and it is it is um, it, it strikes me as um, incredible that they can still have such a loud voice, particularly in the media, um, when there is absolutely no understanding of the corporate interest behind them. We talked a bit, Tanton, about the. Uh the way the role of the media in, in some of these lobbying networks. We talk talk about the uh, media in particular sections of the media themselves as uh, as lobbyists and uh, and influencers on policy. Yeah, I mean the obvious one is Murdoch, um, who just on his own is, is one of the fiercest lobbyists in this country. But I mean we had with with the Leveson inquiry, we had amazing access and insight into how News Corp operates when it wants to get its own way um, uh, in its own interest. So, you know, they wanted to take over these guys B. They were having all sorts of trouble with Vince Cable at the time. Um, and so they launched this uh, ferocious, uh, sustained lobbying campaign in order to get what they wanted. And because of the inquiry we got to see it. I mean, we got to see bits of it anyway, quite a lot of it. So you could see how, for example, they were using third parties. Um, they knew that, that cable wasn't open to kind of overtures directly from them. So they decided to go to the confidants of Vince Cable. So they went to Lord Oakshot, for example. Um, and, you know, and they did it very subtly. So he was invited to a meeting at New School's office or the Times' offices. And then somebody was just going to pop in and mention the issues that News Corp had uh, with the bid. Um, and then hopefully Lord Oakshot was going to take these messages back to Vince Cable. That didn't particularly work. So then they do what lots of industries do, um, particularly the financial industry, which when an industry is threatened with any sort of action that might damage its interests, they can press the nuclear button and, and start issuing threats and ultimatums. So News Corp said, right, if we don't get our way, I'm paraphrasing here. If we don't go our way, we are going to, uh, you know, it will cost jobs and cost investment in the UK. Um, and so they tried that. Um, and then there's some evidence of them making threats to the Lib Dems or, you know, kind of you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. 
Um, and then what we saw um, with the release of lots and lots of emails um, and records of telephone calls and the like, we saw the relationship that they developed between, it was um, Jeremy Hunt, Hunt's special advisor um, and News Corp's chief lobbyist, Michael Fred Michelle. And just the sheer volume of correspondence going between these two, so it's texts and it's phone calls, um, and in its flattery, you know, you know, it's it's, it's news calls, lobbyists texting um, and saying, oh, you know, great speech by Hunt today in Parliament and blah 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 and all this kind of stuff, and it's just this constant drip of of of, of um, keep them close, keep them really close, because that is how the information flows. You can then. You know, things will be said that you'll get the inside track. You'll you'll get the little tidbits of information that are going to help your campaign, and you can drip feed information to Jeremy Hunt, who who the decision passed to. Um, and you can see in there also the hospitality thing. So there was you know the offer of take that. Do I take that? I don't know, but anyway, take that tickets and the like. Um, and so, and so you you get to see this yeah this amazing kind of. Um, uh, very, very deliberate relationship building um, between lobbyist and um, at least the, the, the broker, of the, the special advisor um, to the minister. It was, it's a fascinating insight um, yeah. to how a, a large corporation that wants something to go its way can just unleash all these forces. It sounds as well, it sounds an awful lot like how you would imagine a court would work, where courtiers would surround just like the king whoever gets to make the decision is surrounded by courtiers all pushing their agenda and using any and all means possible and necessary to get there. And it's, there's an interesting contrast, isn't there, in the way that lobbying seems to interact with central government, where it's very much flatter the king, and local government, where it seems that councillors have been reduced really to the level of courtiers to big landed interests. Um, and I guess this is a sort of this reflects just how centralised government has become. Um, yeah, I wouldn't overstate the power of central government, though. I mean, I th I think uh, you know I'm not party to these conversations, but um, I should think there's a a large power imbalance, even if you are Secretary of State. You know, between the health minister and Pfizer, for example, or right. the pharmaceutical industry. So I wouldn't overstate that power. Interesting. Okay. Um, speaking of power, I mean one of the one of the things we've touched on already is the um, the role of the corporates pushing a privatisation agenda, particularly in in education and health. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting about this push is is the ways in which it's been presented as a kind of an, an inevitable consequence of technological change. Could, could we talk a little bit about? the way in which players like Google, Microsoft and the, the big big digital corporates have been moving into this this space of lo lobbying central government around the provision of public services? Yeah, it's it's interesting this and in that you sort of you sort of think you've got your head around the kind of how lobbyists operate and then you and then you get into something else where um I'm going to talk about it in, in terms of, there, there, are, there are certain educate. I'm going to talk about it in the context of education, but the parallels between health and education are marked, so it sort of applies to both. But um, in terms of the digitisation of, of public services, um, you know, uh, to start with, it opens up an awful lot of opportunities for the private sector. It allows you to, un they talk about unbundling public services so you you can hand over the operations to one person and another person can do the buildings and another person can do content delivery and another person can do the analytics and you know it, it, it basically allows you to kind of break down these institutions into discrete services and products um, uh, all fueled by data um, and if you can open up that data then you also have the opportunity to to create more markets and more product um, more more Revenue, right. um, so that's a that's a, in a nutshell. Um, but in terms of how they've got about it, there's a there are there are various kind of um, reformers uh, who are in this who advocate this kind of um, way of digitising public services, and they talk about the seepage of technology into services. So it's not a case that you know we've had. Um, 
central government announcing that they are going to digitise education and children are going to learn online and we can get rid of lots of teachers or te teaching assistants and this is going to be government policy. What I think instead is we're seeing, we're seeing the, the seepage, this, this, this kind of slow drip of technology into schools, for example, and certainly into the, um, in, into the NHS. Um, and it, they're partly market making um, and growing uh, uh, the, whether it's the education technology or the health technology industries. Um, but it means that, it, that certainly there is high level um, uh, dialogue between industry and government. Um, but I think what's more interesting is, is how this reform happens. So for example, one of, the, one of the prerequisites for this to happen, one of the necessary things that has to happen is that you need a workforce that is amenable to this. You need teachers or doctors who are open to the idea of new practices um, and um, a certain kind of deprofessionalization and standardization and things that come from um, uh, moving to more digital services. Um, and so you get campaigns um, which are... Uh, uh, initiated and funded by, for example, Google and the, and, and the big tech companies, which are more like peer-to-peer -peer marketing campaigns designed to win over the the teaching profession, for, for example. So you will have teacher-to-teacher -teacher networks, and that could be social networks, or it can be um, kind of training networks, so they will train up what they call Google, um, what they call Google educators, um, and they will then go and take the message out to other teachers who will then spread it and cascade it out to the profession. Um, so there are there are um, a different ways of communicating, but crucially, I think the different one of the differences with this is that there is little public debate about what is happening in health and education around technology. Certainly, I've been now to two recent um, uh, uh, conferences, both in the delightful Excel Centre in London's Docklands, um, one in education, one in health, um, where you get elite decision makers from the NHS or from the Department of Education and the large technology companies, um, and they are having a discussion about radical reform of public services, but it is one that is entirely separate from the public debates that we're having. So the public is talking about I don't know, grammar schools and, and certainly about cuts. Yeah. Uh, but when you when you when you go to some of the even the trade bodies that or, or the the trade press, where you would expect some of these ideas to be kind of debated and thrashed out, um, there is a there's a, a reluctance to cover any of these conversations, these elite conversations that are having, having in, these, in, the, in these conferences, and there are real issues that need to be talked about. So, for example, data privacy, particularly, well, health and education, about the sharing of data with corporate interests, um, very, very sensitive private data. Um, and you go to these conferences and everybody says, yeah, no, we really need to have a conversation with the public about this, and yet there's no media coverage of it whatsoever. So it's kind of or very, very little media coverage. Uh, do you have any sense of why there would be this reluctance to cover these elite conversations in, in, as you say, specialist media in particular, which you would think would be, you know, would be lapping up this kind of information and seeking to share it with its audience? Well, I, I, I think, um, I mean, the, anecdotally, what I've been told is that there is no interest among the teaching profession, for example, to have these conversations to talk about datification or standardization or privatization um, teachers apparently don't want to don't want to discuss these things even though they probably are experiencing them in their working lives um, I, I, I I'm not prone to conspiracy theory so I don't, I don't think it is that I think it is a lot to do with um, particular framing of debates so this is um, it is framed as a very technical um, conversation that doesn't necessarily need public input, certainly would be very unwelcome. Whenever um, uh, the last time that the government decided to talk to the, or, or present something to the to the public about, for example, data sharing in, um, in the health service, um, I mean, it was a huge cock-up uh, with care.data, and obviously um, people were very sensitive about the fact that there was a distinct possibility that, that there was going to be an awful lot of data sharing with the private sector um, and the way that so I think I think there is a real reluctance because they are very afraid of how they of, of not being able to control 
the right. conversation. Right. Um, so, it's interesting uh, you, you mentioned sort of technical complexity because I think there, there are very interesting parallels with the financial sector in that regard. In that, agree, yeah. you know, in, in terms of mainstream coverage of finance, particularly before 2008, but, but even now, I think, there was this idea that, oh, like what, what banks do is boring and therefore that people won't be interested in it. Um, and I think it, there may be there may be something in the idea that if you want some, to keep something hidden, you just make you make it sound really boring um, or, oh, you or make super it sound, technical, um, very natural and kind of inevitable. There is something about you know the, so the framing of a lot of these digital tools in education, for example, is that they are very neutral and they're just useful. They're just useful, neutral tools that have nothing to do with power. They're nothing to do with power relations between who owns um, education, who is accountable for systems, um, right. you know. So inno- all innovation just kind of happens, and then we have to yeah. adapt to it. Yeah. But I think that must be a very important theme that they, they want to push. Cause it, and the reason why I think it's important is it, it's, sort of our, it's, it's sort of commonsensical for us, isn't it? At the back of our minds is this sort of general sense that Oh, the world's globalizing, te- technology is advancing, and therefore these changes are are inevitable. Um, that was just Blair, isn't it? Wasn't it? I mean, that was pretty much what Blair kind of mastered as a political message was that yeah, technology, globalization, this isn't political; it's about managing things and so on. Yeah, but these are immensely political debate. I mean, the the the, the this the technological takeover of something like education yeah uh, which is seen as a what 5.5 trillion dollar industry by 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 investors um and and digitization is seen as a, as a means of privatization so it's not just an end it's a it's a means of doing it yeah uh, it, so this yeah this is uh, it's this is an intensely a political conversation that needs to be had um it's also quite gendered i mean if you look at the tech people who are, are, are pushing a lot of this agenda. So it's the si- Silicon Valley titans, it's the, you know, it's the Bill Gates, it's mm-hmm. the Eric Schmitz, it's the, I mean, even the Palantir guy, Peter Thiel, he's in on this. So, you know, there's a very, very gendered thing. They are um, wealthy male white billionaires. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't now know what the percentage of, of women is that work as, as teachers, but there is a, there is a, a, a very... Um, certainly, this is having been to these conferences. It is a predominantly male conversation that happens. Interesting, interesting. I mean, it sounds it sounds to me this is a this is a, a classic area where the trade unions need to be making investments in media to push back against these conversations, or at least to to bring them to to more general attention. Um, there's been there's been a sense that the the unions haven't been funding the kind of independent media that would protect their um, their members in, in quite the way they should. Um, which brings me to this, the final thing I think we, we should touch on, which is really like, we're clearly in an environment that's saturated by lobbying. It's, it's clearly pervasive, it's, it's extremely, um, these are very extremely well-developed techniques for um, influencing decision makers, manipulating um, public debates and so on. Can we talk a bit about the ways in which we can push back against this this culture of of unaccountable influence peddling? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, our our whole thing is is I should have said at the top. I mean, we're not anti lobbying. I'm a lobbyist mm-hmm. um, in that I lobby for lobbying transparency regulations. So it's about. It, it, lobbying is a democratic right, and you, don't, you can't stop it. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, you can sort of stop the worst excesses of the kind of gastronomic pimping, but you can't. You, nor should you try to stop this flow of information to government. They should listen. But mm-hmm. what you need to do is you need to make it visible. So it's all about it's all about bringing it into the light so that it can be scrutinised by the public or by journalists. So. There is a very straightforward mechanism. It's called a register of lobbyists, um, which would, in theory, this is how it goes, is that it would require all paid lobbyists, so that's whether you're working in a charity, a trade union, or a corporation, or you're a lobbyist for hire, it would require you to put your name on a register, say who you're working for, 
who is it, whom you're lobbying in government and what you're talking to them about. So I am a, I don't know, I'm a lobbyist working for an arms company and I am lobbying MOD and we are talking about this particular contract and this is crucially how much money I'm spending on it. So um, it's very basic information that should be in the public domain and we've been campaigning for it for the last uh, 20, 10, 20 years. Um, a couple of years ago, the government is wisdom decided, yes, all right, uh, we will bring in a register of lobbyists, and this was because there had been one too many lobbying scandals. There was one that involving Patrick Mercer, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, and they introduced a piece of legislation to, that would that should have introduced a statutory register of lobbyists. Mm-hmm. It is an abs, uh, you know, it's a, it's a sham. It was an absolute joke of a piece of legislation, and the register that we have at the moment is utterly, utterly useless. It was done to tick a box and to make the issue go away. So we do not have a proper lobbying register at the moment. So that's the first thing. We definitely need a decent lobbying register, like they do in Canada, like they do in Brussels, like they've had in Washington for years. Um, it doesn't make the problem go away, but it means that you can see, for example, when the last NHS reforms were going on, you will be able to see how much the private health insurers and the pharmaceutical companies and the management consultants and everything, how much they were spending to influence government. And then maybe we wouldn't have bought the line that the BBC ran, which is that these NHS reforms are all about handing power to GPs. That would be clearly shown up to be bullshit if you could see that however many millions of pounds have been spent by whether it's US health companies or whatever, it would have it would have cast doubt certainly on the government spin if you could see the power of the uh, or the influence that was going on around it. Anyway, so that's the first thing. That's what you can do centrally. Now, I also think it's absolutely crucial that that more people, in the absence of that. Um, that we try and find out as much out about lobbying as possible. And people are really good at this. If you look at, for example, some of the fracking activists at the moment um, uh, around the country, and they have been very good at finding out more about the front groups that have been set up um, and about the relationships between the fracking industry and central government. Um, And you can call that out, and it's a case of then trying to either through social networks or through the mainstream press, trying to get that those messages out um, so the more people are aware of them. Um, uh, I know, for example, that um, in the NHS at the moment, we're not having... A, we're having conversations about, you know, lack of funding, but, but the conversation around privatisation is very distant in the in the mainstream media. It's, it's not being had anything like... to anything like the extent that it needs to be had. But it is happening amongst a very, very active and large um, activist community um, who, are, who are very concerned about what's going on in the NHS. So they're digging away and trying to find about, basically trying to probe these elite relationships. And that could be the elite decision makers um, who are looking to reconfigure hospitals in your area. You can try and find out which management consultants are involved there. You can find out, you know, who... Um, who is talking to whom and what they're talking about. That's basically it. Um, uh, And there are ways of doing that. You can do that through the Freedom of Information um, uh, requests uh, using the Freedom of Information Act. You can do it by looking at public sources, um, you know, public data sources. There are lots and lots of registers of hospitality um, that people can look at. um, And you can ask for them if they're not there. You can look at registers of interest. So if you look at, for example, the, I don't know, the, the... non-executive directors in the NHS or around your particular hospital or whatever, you can look at whether they have any outside interests. Um, and you can start to piece together, um, uh, uh, you can start to glimpse uh, some, of the, some of the relationships um, and the decision-making processes in, in a particular area. This particularly needs to happen at a local government level. Um, and particularly around the lobbying and development industry. There is so little scrutiny of this. Um, and yet, and I know that there are local campaigners who are looking at relationships between developers and local councillors. Um, it would be good if there was more, and there was more, um, maybe there will be more attention can um, you, on it. Can, yeah. if, 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 I was, if I was listening to the podcast and I was, and I was fired up to, to get cracking on the relationship between developers and local government, for example, yeah. 
could you are there resources that you would you'd want to sort of point point me to straight away or are there case studies are you particularly good um journalistic uh forays into this area by by activists or or by mainstream journalists um there are some. I mean, we can, if you, like I said, there are lots and lots of public data sources that should be probed. Um, and you can see there's a there's a piece on the Guardian today by a woman called Anna Minton, yeah, which we contributed to, which is looking at some of the links between uh, the the property and, and development um, industry in London and looking at London councillors. So you can see from that that we've looked at the registers of hospitality of councillors. We've looked at the revolving door between councillors and the industry. So those are, you know, they, they, and you can be, unbelievably, you can be a councillor and head of planning in a London council and still be working for a property developer. Now these relationships need to be foregrounded. They need to be brought out into the light. Um, uh, and in some cases they are, but I, I would encourage anybody to maybe read the piece and yeah. I can get the name of it. Um, but it's by Anna Minton and it is today. We'll, uh, we'll, um, we'll share that on our social media. It's not rocket science. You can see the, you can see the, the, the sources that we've used and the kind of things that we've pulled out in order to, to show some of these relationships. And then, you know, and then you can use the FOI act to, to try and, um, to dig deeper, you can ask for communications between developers and councillors yeah. um, or any elected officials. So, okay. lots of things you can do. Or we have a we. I should mention our wiki. So, Spinwatch has a website, but we have a wiki as well called Powerbase.info, which if you um, want to get some background on a particularly particular lobbying firm or um, certainly management consultancies in the NHS or um, particular politician and their links to the lobbying industry, you may find information on there. So there's basically lots and lots of profiles of organisations um, and uh, individuals uh, who are in this game. That's, um, that's, that's a wonderful start. And as I say, we'll, we'll be tweeting out um, links to, to these resources throughout the day um, and you'll be able to find them on um, the Media Democracy uh, web feed, which is Media Democrat, uh, and Tom and I will also be showing showing that on social media. Um, Tamsin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I think we've covered a huge amount of ground. It's a conversation that needs to be ongoing. I think every local authority needs to have much more scrutiny on it, um, central government as well. And there is, there are things clearly that we we can be doing. Uh, there are ways that we can perhaps push this forward. Um, is there anything you'd like to share with us in terms of uh, links or um, resources before we, we we call it a day? Your book, which is um, a riveting read on lobbying, uh, is called A Quiet Word, and it's available in all good book, bookstores. But just just let us know how we can keep 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 an eye on what Spinwatch and yourself are up to. Uh, certainly, follow the Twitter feed. Um, we cover a lot of ground, so we are um, a small organisation with disparate interests. Um, uh, uh, but you, yeah, if you follow um, at Spinwatch on Twitter, uh, the website also. Um, but if anybody wants to get in touch with me, um, they can contact me through the website. Fantastic! Thanks so much for Pleasure. taking the time today. Yeah, thanks, Tamsin. Lovely. No worries. Bye.